Oh, how many pleasures there are in thinking back over 150 years of God's faithfulness to this church. For example, the pleasure of looking through the 125th anniversary book at this particular page, which has the pictures of 20 of the 23 founding members, 14 women and nine men, and noticing in particular down here in this corner right there, which you can't see, the name August Malmston, who is the grandfather of Marlis Aronson, who is sitting right there with Carl and Alice, her children. So there's a, a direct link of blood. I mean, grandfather, that's yesterday. So Marlis, we honor you and your line all the way back. Wait, wave at us so they know who you are. Wave at us. There you go. Okay. That's one of the pleasures. Another pleasure is to remember that there were 61,000 Swedish immigrants in this 14-year-old state in 1871. 20 Swedish-speaking churches outstate servicing those 61,000 Swedish immigrants in Minnesota. There were 1,200 of them in Minneapolis with one Swedish-speaking church, which happened to be Augustana Lutheran, which now houses one of our church plants. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Therefore, there was a need for the Baptists, and it was August Malmston who had the idea. We probably would not be here were it not for Marlis's grandfather. Another pleasure. John Ring, the first pastor of the church, had been imprisoned in Sweden for his Baptist faith, which is a great legacy for us to remember. Another pleasure, looking at the picture also in here of the very first building built in 1874 with its hitching posts for the horses outside along the dirt street, which causes us to think of a, another pleasure, namely what this church has passed through as it was born in the days of horse and buggy and is now in the space age. Think with me for a moment about that. The arrival in Minnesota of the telephone in 1880, the arrival of electric streetcars in 1890, the automobile in 1902, the first radio station in Minneapolis in 1921, 36 days in a row below zero in 1936, 6,225 lives lost in World War II, which ended in 1945, which was the year that we changed our name from the first Swedish Baptist Church to Bethlehem Baptist Church. The first TV station in 1948, and hooray, the first computer in 1985. I remember that. It was a big argument as to whether they would be of any use. 
And probably now, tonight, more Bibles on smartphones than in print in this room. And don't miss this pleasure. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let this sink in. Really let this sink in. The Minnesota that we live in today is more different from the Minnesota of 1871 than the Minnesota of 1871 was different from the days of Jesus. Vastly more different, which causes us to reflect on this amazing truth that this church has been alive and flourishing under the Lordship of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in allegiance to the Word of God, through a century and a half of the greatest changes in the history of the world. It wasn't like it was easy to be one church through the most tumultuous of 150 years in the history of the world. That's amazing and a deep pleasure to contemplate God's faithfulness. And is it not glorious that this Jesus Christ, this creator of the universe, this upholder of all things, this suffering savior and ransom of our lives, sitting at the right hand of God, head of the church, lover of his people, has been relevant, infinitely relevant to human souls for 150 years of every kind, through every kind of change. How did that happen? How did that happen? I mean, none of the people who were there are here. None of you was there, and yet we call it one church, the same church. We're celebrating the same church. Nobody was there. What's the same? How does that happen? It happens because the individual members of the organism called Bethlehem Baptist Church come and go, but the realities that stay are bigger and more and deeper. They are the living head, Jesus Christ. They are the Holy Spirit bearing his fruit among us and maintaining the peace that Kenny referred to in the video, they are the worship of the Father in the name of Jesus. They are the consistent mission of the gospel going forth. They are a biblical structure of leadership and accountability and submission. Those realities remain. They stay as the parts of the organism go in and out. Now, my question is, why do they stay? Why do they remain? Or more urgently, will they remain? Let's be more personal. Let's ask this question. Not just, will faith remain in the church and thus the church be the church, but will we remain in the faith and thus be Christian? Let's ask that. 
Because the answer to those two questions, why, why at the 175th anniversary, Bethlehem would still exist, and why you might be a Christian in 25 years, the answer to those two why questions are the same. And I want to know what it is. Because our lives hang on it, the church hangs on it. We just sang the answer. I wonder which verse of that last song you'd pick out as the answer. Here's mine. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he is all my hope and stay. We will stay. The church will stay. You will stay a Christian because of the oath and the covenant and the blood. The blood bought the covenant that contains the oath to keep you. Really? What, what covenant is it talking about? Jesus at the Last Supper, remember these words? He lifted up the cup and he said, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Meaning, the terms promised in the new covenant were bought by the blood. The blood of Jesus secured, guaranteed the terms of the covenant for everybody who's in the covenant. And if you're in Christ, through faith, you're in the covenant. That was the terms. Let's go either on that ubiquitous smartphone or a real Bible. I read the iPad every day, lest you think I'm dumping on technology. I love my logos on iPad. But let's go to Jeremiah 32 together, would you? We're going to look at this, and, and you need to see this. You need to see it. And uh, if you don't see it now while I'm talking, then see it later, because you've got to see it with your own eyes, or you can't believe it. It's just spectacularly glorious. I mean, this is the best news in the world, what we're about to see. I mean, better than you can imagine. You think I'm going to say something you know. I'm going to say more than you know, except for a few of you because I've said this before in 1996. Not the same sermon, just the same text. Here it is, this is verse 40. You with me? Chapter 32, Jeremiah. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. And I will rejoice. This is God talking. <laughs> Do you even have a God who's happy? I will rejoice 
in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. I see five, I'm going to call them pleasures because that's the theme of this talk. Five pleasures in those two verses. Number one, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. A covenant is a set of promises with obligations. He's not saying, look, I made a covenant with you when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You broke it, you are now in exile, which is true. Which is why there has to be a new covenant. One that cannot be broken. God can't break it. The human covenant members can't break it because it's an everlasting covenant. That's what we need. Jesus' blood guarantees that both sides of covenant keeping will happen. God will keep his side and his people will keep their side. That's what he bought, covenant keeping, because it's called an everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13.20 refers to the blood of the eternal covenant. It's the blood that secures its eternality. The old covenant is growing old and passing away. It was broken. It could be broken. This one can't. Let that sink in. That's pleasure number one. He made an everlasting covenant with his people. Pleasure number two. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Here it is. Second. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. You just heard that unfolded in Romans 8, right? Romans 8, 32, Romans 8, 28, two ways of saying the same thing. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Meaning, he will. He cannot not. Or, Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That is God's covenant purpose not to let anything happen to them that won't be good for them, period. All things working for their good, period. That's what he bought for his people. It is done. All you need to be is in Christ, a covenant member. It's yours. He will work everything together for our good. Romans 8, 28, Jeremiah 32, 40, saying the same thing. Every hard thing that comes into your life is designed by God for your good, no matter how hard it feels. Let me take you back to 1995. Only a few of you will remember this. Maybe nobody. Noel remembered it. Back in those days, I, I preached a message on this text and lots of hard things were going on in those days, just as hard as now, harder, take my word for it. Um, 
and we needed help for children and for all of us to have a simple, memorable couple of lines that would express the meaning of sovereign grace in the lives of God's people through the hardest times. And so I made four lines up. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain. For years I heard children and adults saying that at Bethlehem. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Pleasure number three in this text, still in verse 40. Are you with me? I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And here it is, number three. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That's what I meant when I said the blood of Jesus secures both sides of the covenant keeping. God puts the fear of God in the heart of his people. You don't first fear God and thus meet the qualification and he decides that you're his. That's backward, right? This is Bethlehem. We know Bible. We read the text. And the text says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That, if you're a Christian, he did that for you. That's how you became a Christian. Oh, Christian, are you thrilled that you are a Christian because God made you a Christian? I tell you, this world we live in right now, this contentious world, this arrogant, proud, fighting, self-exalting world, you know what it needs? It needs millions of Christians who are blown away in humility that God saved them owing to nothing in themselves. Humble, broken, contrite, lowly, thrilled, courageous Christians. That's what it needs. There it is. It's right there. It's just so clear. You didn't save yourself. This church didn't keep itself. It didn't become a church on its own. We believe in sovereign, glorious, precious. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Sovereign grace. Yes, we do. Pleasure number four. Still in verse 40. Last phrase, let's read it all again. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. There it is. That's the answer to how this church survived 150 years. Or, to make it personal, that's the answer to why you tonight are a Christian. 
still. And if you wake up tomorrow morning a Christian believer, that is why you will wake up a Christian believer. I won't let you turn from me. If Bethlehem is here for its 175th, it will be because of that text. I won't let you turn. Questions all over your faces. You need to go to church here, you know, just to get some answers maybe. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have gone out. But they went out that it may be plain that they were not of us. They weren't in the covenant. The covenant stands. Nobody is lost in the covenant. Glorious, glorious truth. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is faithful. He will do it. That's our only hope. Pleasure number five. The last one. I will rejoice. This is verse 41. Are you with me? You got to see this for yourself because this is, this is the... Oh, what image would not be disrespectful? <laughs> Cherry on the top, icing on the cake. That's awful. This is the greatest. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart. Now, how big is God's heart? How strong, how deep is God's heart? It's infinite. Has no bottom, has no top, has no edge. With all my heart and all my soul, I'm going to do you good. You know, I look out across this room and I, I want to ask you, have you ever had the thought that God is begrudging in being good to you? He begrudges doing good to you. He's slow to do good to you. He's being arm wrestled by the blood of Jesus into being good to you, but really he's mad. If so, may I set you free right now by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God? Would you just read that and say, Piper didn't say that. God said that. I will rejoice over them and do them good with all my heart. Not half, not 90%, not 99.9% .9 of my heart and 1% over here wishing I didn't have to do good to them. With all my heart, I will do them good. We have at Bethlehem a happy God. You can't be a happy people without a happy God. If you have a moody, glum, discouraged, begrudging God, you cannot be a happy people. 
This verse is meant to make you put your hand over your mouth with absolute amazement. When you get off the floor, you remove your hand and you sing, right? You're going to sing. That's what we do when this text hits us. So God, here they are, five pleasures of mine. God makes an everlasting covenant with us. He won't turn away from doing good to us. He puts the fear of God in us and he keeps us and won't let us turn away from him. And he does it with all of his heart and with all of his soul and it makes him happy to do it. His joy is to do good to you. Now, I'm going to close like this. I want to put on my, whatever hat I had on now, I'm not sure what it is, but I'm going to put on my old pastor hat, all right? This is Pastor John. Uh, pick, go back 10 years if you want or whatever, 20, 30, 40. Uh, I'm going to put my old hat on and I'm going to do what Pastor Emeritus are not allowed to do without permission, but I got permission. Okay. I'm going to celebrate three things. Number one, Without detracting in the least from the great work of God in the last eight years, I celebrate with you the call of Kenny Stokes as my pastor downtown. I am... I am thrilled with the ministry of Stephen Lee. I am thrilled with the ministry of David Zuliger. What a great team of lead pastors God has raised up for us. And I want you to know very personally that I worshiped with great joy under the ministry of Jason Meyer for eight years. And, and I expect to worship with equally great joy under the ministry of Kenny Stokes for as long as I live, Kenny, or if you quit too soon, then we'll work that out. <laughs> I was Kenny's lead pastor for 15 years, and now I am privileged to have him be mine. This too is a great pleasure. That's number one celebration, two more quick. Number two, even though there is a nostalgic downside to think of Bethlehem becoming three churches instead of one. Uh, the decision of the elders to move in the direction of three churches is, in my judgment, wise and strategic. From the beginning, I'm the one who got us into this, folks, okay? <laughs> 2002, we decided to do campusing. Okay, and, and I was totally for it. I have no regrets. I told Kenny this afternoon, zero regrets, none. Because I thought from the beginning, this would be an awesome thing if sooner or later we became three healthy churches. I mean, I just think of it in terms of really robust church planting with gestation periods of 19 and 15 years. <laughs> so my my love for this church and my dreams for all the years would be amply 
justified and fulfilled if I thought they were God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, reformed Christian hedonist bastions along the 40-mile corridor from Moundsview to Lakeville, so full of joy that they blow the lid off these cities. I would be so happy about that. Why would not we be happy? Not to mention all of the other church plants, so many from all these campuses. It's not like if you go to three churches, you stop planting churches. Hardly. It will be increased. So that's number two. I'm very, very happy, and we just need to figure out how to do it. Number three. This is the last one. Um, When I was pastor, say for the last 20 of those years anyway, uh, we would come to this Sunday. All right, this is the, the last Sunday before Advent starts. And and we would be hundreds of thousands of dollars behind budget every year because people give all their money at the end of December. This is not helpful, but that's what people do. <laughs> and it fell to me, at least I felt like it fell to me, fix that, take care of that, it's your job. And, and I felt that. And so I simply said, he can do this. He can do this. Like a, a million and a half dollars we need by the end of, I mean, this is when the church was half the size it is now. We can do this because God owns everything. He made the world. He upholds it by the word of his power. He stops the sun in the sky. He splits seas. He feeds 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. He raises the dead. He puts coins in fish's mouth. There's not a problem here. We can do this. So let's believe. Let's trust him. Let's make him our treasure here at the end of the year and show that by giving to his cause. So there I am doing my pastoral job here at the end of the year. Happy, happy, happy to do it. Now, we're going to close like this. We're going to sing a song. I saw the outline way before you did. We're going to sing a song right now as I hand it off to Chuck. One of the greatest songs, I think, that has ever been written expressing sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It is a signature Bethlehem song. I mean, if the pastoral staff were ever bowed in prayer without any plan at all and somebody started a song, it would be, it is well with my soul. That's what it would be. So I just want to end by saying, dear Bethlehem, dear child of God, we will come to the last verse And we will crescendo into the second coming of Jesus. And if you are alive to see him on the clouds, or if you meet him in the call of death, I want to say, you're going to make it home. I will make with you an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to you. I will put the fear of me in you and I will not let you turn from me. You're going to make it home. So let's sing that great song together.